Well, before we begin, let's pray. Um, let's just give this day over to, to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for today, and I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the privilege that we have to be here, to, um, to be able to worship you freely, to be able to learn from your word freely. I'm thankful for the privileges that we have today. I'm thankful for the, um, for the words that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, for the way that it encourages me and for the way that it teaches me more about who you are and your relationship with us and your desire for us. So open our hearts this morning. Open our ears. Um, help us not just to hear what you have to say, but to apply it to our lives. And bless us today to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, one thing that um, you probably don't know about me, it's not evident, but um, I am a huge football fan. I, um, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, home of the Denver Broncos. I've been a fan since the... Since before um, John Elway. Si yes, since the, the, the 1900s. Um, and I, I love football. And I, when I watch it, though, I, I used to be confused by something because... A, a player would make a play, and then he'd run off the field and grab the phone. And I thought, what in the world is he doing? He, a quarterback would throw an interception and um, run off the field and grab the phone. I thought, what's he doing? Is he, like, calling his mom to say, you know, to, to whine about it? Is he ordering a pizza? I didn't know, but then I finally found out that what he was doing was he was calling upstairs to the press box because there were coaches in the press box that would tell him what was happening, what had happened, and tell him what went wrong with the play. And he called the coaches in the press box because, or the coaches in the press box called him, because they had a different vantage point. They had a different perspective. When he's on the field, he can't see the same way that they can see the field. God is a lot like those coaches in the press box. God has a vantage point that we don't have, that we can't see. And so God, from his vantage point, has a lot to offer and to say to us as we walk along in this thing we call the Christian life. And so this vantage point makes it easy for God to be able to control us rather than for us to try to figure it out ourselves. So while we're down here trying to fumble around, figuring it all out, God has a vantage point. And I think that Paul understood God's vantage point. And I think that he saw his circumstances and where he was in his life from a different perspective, not on a human level, but on a God level. And I think he was able to um, endure where he was. He was in Rome, if you remember from yesterday's introduction, he was under house arrest. He was chained to a prison guard 24 hours a day. Can you even imagine? Can you imagine what would happen if you were 24 hours a day chained to somebody? It's, it would be like no... It'd be dreamy, wouldn't it? It'd be dreamy. <laughs> It'd be dreamy something. It'd be a nightmare is what it would be. Can, can, can you... <laughs> Can you imagine, like, no privacy, right? You have no privacy, no alone time. I don't know about you, but as a, as a, I need my alone time. I don't need scads and scads of alone time because if I have too much time with just myself, 
I'm either bored or I'm thinking, I've, I've got to find somebody to talk to. I, I can't just be... So I wouldn't want it, but to be 24 hours a day, no privacy, nothing on your own, everything you said, everything you did, scrutinized and watched. So here is Paul, and he's, he's attached to this prison guard. He was waiting for a trial, probably before Nero, and if you understand anything or know anything from history, you know that, that just the thought of Nero um, and a trial before him had to have been terrifying as he waited for that. But the tone we get from Philippians 1 is not of despair. It's not of discouragement. He isn't worried at all. In fact, he doesn't even talk about himself all that much as, as far to say, like, oh, woe is me, this is so hard, would you pray for me? All that. He's not that kind. That's not what he's getting from this letter to the church at Philippi. The only way that Paul could have any kind of hope is because he has the perspective or the vantage point that God has, that he understands all of that. And I like to, to when I talk about God's vantage point, I like to um, talk about, like, uh, sorry, guys, this is not a, a guy thing, but, well, it could be. Rosie Greer, I think, did something. But, like, needlepoint. If you've ever done needlepoint or cruel or any kind of that stuff where you're, you're trying to make this beautiful thing appear. And I, and I used to needlepoint back in the day. And, um, that must have been before we were no, married. Yeah, it was. Yeah, you've never seen it. Um, so anyway, but then I'd turn it upside down, and what does it look like from the back, right? It's a mess. You know, you've got knots, you've got strings going all over. You can't tell from the back what the front looks like at all. And so I think that that's the same thing with life for us. That when the, uh, that, that needle point, what happens in our lives is the underside of the needle point. Only God sees from the top. And God has this vantage point of knowing what is going to happen. But when we see our lives, we see some knots. And we see some strings. And we see some hanging threads. And we just don't sometimes understand. I think God can change our vantage point. I think God can change our perspective. And I think if Paul can have the perspective that he believed and trusted in God, we can too. Listen, I'm not going to live my life worrying about what my life looks like from this point. I'm going to trust God for what he's doing in my life. So that's where we are with Paul in chapter 1 of Philippians. It's a huge amount of trust, isn't it? To assume that this isn't all and that it doesn't look like this from God's view. And that what I see is not what is necessarily the reality. And I want to remind my family, my children of that. You know, what happens is not necessarily, what you think is happening is not necessarily what God is doing. God is working, and he talks about that in Philippians 1. And the, the reality is that getting God's God's vantage point and his perspective on your problems and issues can give you a sense of joy and peace. You might not understand what he's doing, but you can trust him. You can believe in him. And Philippians 1 is going to challenge you and it's going to challenge me to get God's vantage point. Rejoice in the midst of adversity because God knows what he is doing. He knows what he's doing and he's aware of it and he is in control. And God's perspective is what I want to try to have because then, and only then, can we really experience the joy and peace that God is calling us to do.
So the chapter 1 of Philippians really could be kind of titled Joy in Troubling Circumstances. Remember yesterday when we read through the whole, uh, the whole book, thank you, we talked about one of the words that kept coming up was rejoice or joy. Rejoice, rejoice. Have joy, have joy. So Luke 11, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Luke. I know, I'm sorry. I've got that one. Philippians, let's try Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul knew Luke. Well, thank you. Some of my best friends are named Luke. So Philippians chapter 1, it's going to be a long morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul, at the very beginning there, calls himself a servant. In some of the translations, it's called a bond servant. He's a bond servant. What is a servant? When he calls himself a servant, what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, you're doing the bidding of other people. Good. Good. What else? Being a slave? Is that what you said? Yes, to another person. You're not your own person, right? You're doing the some what everybody else says for you to do. You are a servant. And he says a bond a servant. And that was it's some of the verses, some of the uh, Translations say bondservant. A bondservant was somebody, they weren't, they had sold themselves as a servant. They had given themselves as a servant to somebody else. So Paul is saying, I have given myself as a servant to Christ. I'm not doing what I want anymore. I am doing what Christ wants me to do. And normally in most of his letters, Paul says, he, he starts his letter out, Paul an apostle. In Philippians, he didn't have to say he was an apostle. They never questioned his apostleship. And maybe it was because that church in Philippi was not started in a synagogue of Jews. You know, everywhere that Paul went, it wasn't the Romans that were trying to kick him out. It was almost always the Jews. The Jews were the ones that were after him. So everywhere he went, he had to talk about who he was as far as an apostle, I'm an apostle. Later on in the chapter, he does talk about how he could be so um, 
so, so um, uh, confident of who he was because he was a, a Hebrew of Hebrew, Hebrews. Talks about that. But in here, he does not have to convince them that he is sent from Jesus Christ. He just says that he is a bondservant. I have served, sell, sold myself into slavery to Jesus Christ. And then he writes to all the saints. We think sometimes that the saints are those who have died and gone ahead, right? But he's not writing to the dead. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to the believers. He's calling them saints. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because what we understand saints to be are some people who have done great things. You know, Saint Mother Teresa, Saint Christopher, Saint all of these. He's calling them saints. Holy ones, set apart ones. He's calling those believers young believers. I mean, many of them had come to know, well, all, really all of them had come to know Christ at this time in the past 10 years. Somewhere in there, he's calling them saints, holy ones. So, what does he say are some of his feelings toward them? Starting in verse 3, what does he say? How does he feel towards those saints? in Philippi. Oh, he's so thankful, right? I thank my God. When? Every time I remember you. Every single time. I am so thankful for you. And he always prays how? He always prays with joy for them. He loved those believers in Philippi. He had such a special relationship with them. I, I don't know why Philippi. Why not, you know, it didn't seem like, it seemed like Philippi was a very healthy church. There were a couple of issues that he was going to deal with, but other than that, it seemed to be a very healthy church. And so every time he thought about them, every time he remembered them, it was with joy and he prayed for them. And why did he pray with joy for them? Why did he thank God for them? Found in verse 5. What is it? Okay, what kind of, what partnership? What is he talking about? Okay, in the gospel. What were they doing in Philippi? Do you remember from yesterday what we talked about? They were financing. They were sending money to him, right? And not only money, who else did they send? Epaphroditus, right? They were not just like, here, we'll send you a check every, you know, every month. Well, don't get me wrong. If somebody wants to send me a check every month, I'd be glad too. But that's not what they were doing. That's not the only thing they were doing. They were also taking care of his needs, sending people to be a part of what he was doing. He felt very loved by the church there at Philippi. So he was, he was, he was expressing how much he loved them. Remember, this is a letter that went back to them. In the, past, in the 10 years since he had established the church there, he had visited once. Uh-uh. In between. In between, or he's going to go afterwards? Well, once in between, and then he says he'd like to okay. go. Okay. No. Yeah, once in between in Acts 21. Acts 20, he says he swung through. Okay, gotcha. So he had been there, but in the last 10 years, he hadn't spent a ton of time with them. Not a lot. He, but he had this relationship with them where he was sending this letter to express how grateful he was. And then he says it's right for me to feel this way since I have you in my heart. 
You know, this, the whole idea of Christian relationships and how strong it was there. But what I love in this passage that we read, most of all, is verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What work had God done in them? What had he done in the church at Philippi? Must have been working, right? It would have been. He opened their eyes to what they were doing. Very pagan. I mean, it was a Roman outpost, right? Military outpost. Their belief in Christ, that Christ was being proclaimed in in Philippi also was a good one. And God was working in them. God had done that work in them to bring them into a relationship with Christ. Not just Lydia. Lydia started it all off. But more and more people grew that church in Philippi. One thing I love about this verse is it gives me hope for myself. I don't know what percentage of your downtime you spend kind of frustrated by yourself. But um, for, for Paul to express um, his confidence that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion is such an incredible promise for me. Now, it's funny, though, because as much as I kind of get frustrated with myself, and then this speaks hope to me, when I look at other people, I, get re- I can get really frustrated with other people. Like, why don't you get this by now? Whatever this is. And I heard somebody say one time, really funny, there's kind of two p- kinds of people. You're either a whip or you're a whack. A whip or a whack. Whip is W-I-P, and you are a work in progress. And we know that about ourselves, even though we get frustrated with ourselves. We need to hand over our faith and go back to the trust thing that Lee talked about. I trust that I am a whip. I know I'm a work in progress. I know I can do better. I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt. The problem is we look at other people coming at us, and we treat them like wax, works already completed. And we don't give in them the opportunity to grow in Christ in the same way. You know what I mean? So we treat ourselves like whips and we go a little easy on ourselves sometimes. We treat other people like wax, especially when uh, they are driving us crazy. In our our expectations of where they should be. Right. Right. So we give ourselves a lot of grace and we forget to give the grace to other people in our lives. Knowing that they're really whips also. And I really want to change. I want God to change that in me because I want to be able to see. (laughs) Oh, honey, honey, I don't see you that way. You're a whip. Thank you. In my eye. (laughs) I want to be able to see other people as God working in them to change them, right? Because... When I think that people are, God's already finished doing in their lives, I can be very judgmental. But when I see them as God working, I can give grace. And I want to be able to give grace. And I think that Paul saw them as works in progress, you know, not expecting them to be further along than they already are. And so I think that the grace, 
Paul understood that whole grace because he had the confidence. He said, being confident, verse 6, being confident of this, and that confidence means a trust or reliance. He was trusting that he who began a good work. Who was that he? God, Jesus Christ. God, who had begun a good work in them was going to complete, carry it on to completion. That his trust was that God would work in them. Not that Paul would be able to get in there and change them, but that God would. And so when we can see other people as God working in them, and when people walk through the doors of our churches and, and into our businesses or into our lives, wherever they are, we see them the way God sees them, the way Paul is seeing this church at Philippi. Because you can bet that this church at Philippi wasn't 100% uh, uh, completely uh, perfect. We know that. Yet he called them saints. And he called them as, those that, as God who was doing a great thing in their lives. Carrying it to completion. It's so awesome. God is going to finish it. There's almost this handing off that you have to do with people. And that, trusting that God is going to work in them. And that God had done that long ago. That this whole thing, I, I, Ellen said something, or Eileen or whoever she is, said something. <laughs> Eileen said something last yesterday, and she couldn't remember it, but she said that, that long ago, and it was, so I'm going to paraphrase it and slaughter it. Long ago, you were a thought in God's mind and a place in God's heart. You know, from the beginning of time, you know. And if she didn't say that, she will say it because it's good and she'll now steal it. But, um, but you know, long ago, God was at work in us, you know. He knew where we would be today. He knew what we would be doing. He knew what we would need. He knew what our lives would be like. He had the perspective back then to be able to look down right now and to see where we are. God knew. It may be from this verse that um, one time Maxie Dunham said, and I quote it probably twice a year at my church, and it's this. There's a place in God's heart that only you can fill. There's a place in God's heart only you can fill. And that to me is just one of the most powerful thoughts and not only that, but he who began that good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So then in verses 9 through 11, what are some of the things that Paul prayed for those believers there? I heard a mumble. Okay, he prayed love. that their love may abound more and more, right? In what? Okay. And what else? What is the growing in knowledge and depth and insight? He separated those two things, knowledge and depth of insight. I think that depth of insight means that you're understanding a little bit more about people. I think it's almost what we just talked about, seeing people in a different way, your depth of insight. You see things differently. It's not just that you know it, because when we know Scripture, but the depth of insight maybe is being able to... Uh, to to apply it to where we are, to own it for yourselves, that your love may abound more and more. He was praising them for their love, but he said, there's still more you can do. You can go further in all of that so that you can discern what is best, right, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. 
That blameless means that you are literally not stumbled against. He wanted them to be blameless, not being able to be stumbled against, not being a stumbling block, not keeping somebody else from understanding the gospel. I want you to grow so that you don't become a stumbling block for others around you. And then he prays that they would, that, that, that they would be able to discern what is best and they would be pure. That pure means sun-tested or sincere. And that sincere word is, is that, that, whole sin, that whole idea, this whole idea of um, a pottery image in, in, that, in that Greek time, in that time of the, um, when he wrote it. This pottery image. And that pottery that they built was really fragile. And oftentimes it cracked when it was fired. And so what dishonest merchants would do, would, they would fill that, those cracks with wax. And so that you could still use the pottery, but it wasn't necessarily as, um, as strong as it should be. Honest merchants would get rid of the cracked pottery, but the dishonest ones would keep it filled with wax. And so when you were in your shop selling, you couldn't see that it was uh, cracked. But if you took it out to the light, you could hold it up, and guess what? The sunlight, sun testing, would show that there was a crack in that pottery. And so Paul was saying that you need to be pure and sincere, not cracked and filled up with wax, but perfect, so that when the tough times come, you aren't going to fall apart. You are going to be pure and blameless, sincere and blameless, not a stumbling block and not filled with wax. A that meltdown. You would be, and have a meltdown. So with God in this whole thing, if God is the one who has begun a good work in us, if he is going to be the one to complete it, to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, then with God there is no would have been. There are no should-have-beens. There are no could-have-beens. With God, there is this fact that he is going to do that, that our love, that he will so work in us, that our love will abound, that we will grow, that we will change, and that he will make us into the people that he desires to be because God knows he's got the vantage point of being in heaven and knowing all of all and being a part of all. Picking up in verse 12, as if that's not enough to like chew on for a while, Paul writes this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What had happened to him? Prison. Like shipwreck, beatings, bitten by poisonous snakes, all this stuff on this journey that he took from Jerusalem and eventually all the way to Rome. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard or the whole palace and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. I want to stop there really quick and chunk it out. The whole palace guard, that's literally the Praetorian Guard, a special class of Roman soldiers designed to serve in the emperor's uh, official bodyguard. 
And that's who Paul gets access to because of his imprisonment. It's pretty amazing when you think of it like that. He says, um, it has been become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. The everyone else means not just the guards, but all of the, the um, Romans in charge of Paul's case, meaning those not worshiping Christ, the pagans, um, had heard of his faith and seen his character witness. And, you know, it's interesting today in uh, the 21st century, 2017, the lack of understanding, I think, that people have about Christianity. And I just would wish that they could get to know you or that you would get to know them in such a way that they would have heard of your faith and seen your character witness and our character witness trusting in God that he's still working in us. The idea of how the gospel spreads is pretty amazing. And we talked about yesterday how we know what happened with Paul because of Luke and because they gathered these letters when there were other apostles sharing Christ and starting churches. Then he talks about everyone else knows about this, that I am in chains for Christ. And the Greek word literally meant a short length of chain by, that was tied to the wrist of a prisoner bound to the wrist of a soldier. And we talked, I, may, I mentioned yesterday, and everybody laughed about being the guys taking turns being chained to Paul. Talk about a captive audience the other way around. The idea of hearing him praying and reading scripture and dictating letters, the ideas of receiving all the visitors that he had had to be fascinating for these Roman soldiers. Maybe as the Roman soldiers became believers, they volunteered for duty, right? Like, wouldn't I, I'd love to be chained to Mother Teresa for a little while, right? There are some people that I would like, I would love to be chained. I would have loved to have been chained to Elizabeth Elliot, right? I would have loved to be chained to some, some of the greats of the faith. That would be amazing. You know, if there's somebody in your life, one thing that's kind of been coming into my mind more and more is the impact that other people have had on me. And whether that means you listen to some YouTube sermons or messages, or whether there's someone in your life that you pursue for the sake of them kind of coaching you or mentoring you, um, that's been one of the differences between now and 25 years ago when I started in ministry is I was so, I was clueless, but I was I was clueless enough not to seek out other people to learn from, you know, or to build a relationship with. And it didn't just mean sitting listening to lectures, but watching how they did life and watching all the problems that they had. Some of my best mentors had kids who went to prison for drug dealing, um, all kinds of different things. But how they managed, God bless you, the good stuff with the bad stuff. And so the idea of, of not chaining yourself, but having a link, having a connection with somebody around you. And it doesn't mean you, you have to have all the same interests or anything like that, but to get a regular dose of that. I actually have um, four different groups every week that I meet with of men. Most of them are before breakfast. Um, and we, we grab coffee at the kitchen at the church, 
and then we make our way to sit down around some tables, and basically we ask ourselves these questions. How's your life? How's your walk with Christ? And how's your ministry going? Meaning all of us are called to minister, and it's not your ministry, it's Jesus' ministry. So how's Jesus' ministry going through your life? You know, are you, are you feeding, and are you, are you being fed, and are you feeding others? But the nice thing that I found, I found so much um, benefit of the question, how's your life? Because they can say, oh, it's fine. You know, if you're walking past someone, oh, how's your life? Fine. But it's not just how are you. It's, it's one step closer to like them being able to actually engage and say, oh, it's really good. But my son, um, Justin, is going through a hard time. You were like, oh, I can pray for that. So how's your life? How's your walk with Christ, and how's your ministry going? Where are you engaging in that? And that would be something that shouldn't be weird for us to ask anybody else in our churches. You know, kind of trying to create a culture around you where you could say those questions, and that would connect you to those people. So here's my question. Has God chained you? Um, Remember, Paul spent... Paul, oh, let me back up. Talking about these guards in Paul's specific situation, taking an interest in the guard, caring about his captors in a way that blew their minds. You know, the best way to, to uh, eliminate an enemy is to turn them into not an enemy. And I don't mean to, for that to sound like some Pollyanna kind of a thing, but... You can at least take a, an interest in their lives. Paul spent uh, two years under house arrest in Rome in Acts 28. Talks about the end of his life. That's where the book of Acts ends with the, the death of Paul. And here's my question. Has God chained you to anyone in order to advance the gospel? It might be the person you share an office with. It might be a family member, and and you feel literally shackled by them. Uh, How can you use those chains to your advantage? Has God chained you to anyone in order to advance the gospel? And can you use those chains to your advantage? Interesting. One other question is, how does Paul decide if an event is good or bad, like jail? That should be kind of categorically bad. But I also know a young man uh, that came back to our church named Cole, who for three years, because of drug dealing, um, went to prison. They gave him the, the maximum that, that they could. But while he was there, he had nothing to do but read and work out and be discipled by people. Jails have become such an a high-level discipling environment for so many people. Obviously, depending on the jail and depending on the openness of the person. But he had read like five C.S. Lewis books and all these other things, and he's just this young man. And the question, how would Paul's circumstances and his example encourage other Christians in Rome? What do you think? If Paul can do it, I can do it. Like the worst thing that could ever happen, you know, other than him getting killed or something, I suppose, in their minds, and yet Paul is, is maximizing 
his mission, which is to make Jesus famous. But don't you imagine that they were kind of all just watching to see what was going to happen? I mean, as the, as the news went out that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and after being there for two years, most of, that, um, most of the churches around in, in, from Jerusalem up to Rome would have known where he was. So they were watching, I think, to see what Paul's reaction would be. And I love that he wrote to the church at Philippi saying that, you know, I'm, I'm okay and this is good. Where I am is good because the gospel is going out. Yeah. So. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit when Peter died also in Rome. And, and tradition says that he was crucified, but he asked to be crucified upside down out of humility toward Jesus. And after he died, everyone freaked out. But Peter had also been relying on a young man to translate his messages as he was traveling all the way to Rome from Jerusalem. And the young man's name was John Mark, who's mentioned in the book of Acts, who realized after Peter was gone, everyone was wigged out saying, the man who was closest to Jesus is gone. How are we going to capture everything that he taught us? But upon his death, John Mark realized, I've been translating for him for years. Why don't I write down everything that I can remember? And out of that, we get the Gospel of Mark. So even in the midst of what we think would be a dead end, you know, with the death of Peter, one of the right-hand men of Jesus, came this Gospel of Mark's that has impacted lives throughout centuries. Let's look at the next... Yes. Paul was chained to the elite guards, yes. I bet these elite guards had more training and knew how to handle it more. And so that they might have, once they realized Paul was genuinely interested in them, been able to be more lenient with Paul. That is very much a possibility. Although he still was killed. They were the best of the best guards. Yeah. Meaning they would have influence on other people. And here's Paul pouring into them. 24-7. 24-7. Yeah. Good. Yep, that's exactly right. And more authority. Mm-hmm. Could have been. Absolutely could have been. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. exactly right. We don't know, but you, we can, yeah. Exactly it sure, may, right. it sure can, would make it, sense. It makes more sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Look at verse 15. It is true... It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. 
And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, this is interesting because um, Paul is saying other people are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition or envy. And then he ends up saying, but what does it matter? It's kind of, it's kind of interesting. These other preachers have motives. Maybe they were envious of Paul. Maybe they were um, wanting themselves to be recognized. But here's what um, catches me off guard. Paul says, what does it matter if Christ is being preached? Now, what's interesting is in the book of Galatians that Paul writes, Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 6. He says I am, to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, and I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And now Paul's saying, well, what does it matter? Here's what I think is going on. I think the message to the Galatians was not Christ alone for salvation. So Paul is like, get rid of any kind of opportunity for other kinds of preaching. But these, these um, people who are preaching out of envy or out of bad motives, um, false motives, um, are still preaching Christ. Which really is kind of interesting because we make a big deal out of motives. But Paul says, but what does it matter as long as Christ is being preached? And that's kind of one of the things that I find, um, in a way, a relief. I remember struggling with this because I, I was going to Cuba. And this is about 10 years ago with World Methodist Evangelism. And I was kind of freaked out because I thought I'm most I'm half the reason I'm going is to go to a country that still is run by a dictator and that would be really awesome to share with people and all of a sudden I'm like oh my motives are terrible you know and so I started wigging out and a friend said oh it's too bad I've never had any bad motives in my life <laughs> that God hasn't worked in the midst of and so I guess um, one of the things th imagine if we could cop the attitude what does it matter um, about some of the areas in our lives because we obsess about certain things and we blow off certain things and then we worry about both things. And here's a really helpful question that a psychologist in our church in Dexter has said and helped me with. And it had to do with election, the election and the anxiety and the worry that uh, Ellen was talking about. And it's this, um, where's the threat? You know, if you heard something was going on in one of the schools, um, you know, the question is, where's the threat? Because we tend to worry about a lot of stuff. And if we could ask ourselves that question, where's the threat, I think it would be helpful. I tried to think of, like, how would that relate to today? You know, preaching, 
Christ out of envy or, you know, the wrong motives. And I, I wondered about, you know, sometimes we are so turned off by um, tele-evangelists or those huge, what, what? Big churches. Big churches and pastors who, um, you know, they, they live in big houses and they, you know, seem like their motives maybe aren't. And Paul's kind of saying, so what? So what? Christ is being preached. I'm not the judge of their motives, but if Christ is still, is still being preached, if others are being reached for the gospel, as long as it's not a different gospel, so what? Who cares? Can we just adopt the, the who cares? It saves us from being jealous. So I lead a Bible study on Tuesday mornings. So what if somebody else wants to come and lead a Tuesday morning Bible study? I, come on in, you know. Come, we can't have too many, right? So what? So what? Why would I be threatened? Why? Why would Matt be threatened by the big church down the road? You know. So what? Let them do what they do. We're all in this together. It's all just to proclaim the gospel. That's the most important thing. God has called me to do this right here. But so what that they're doing that there? That's a hard one, though. Ooh. That's a great point. Satan wants, Satan to, make wants it to make it personal. personal. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. And that's, I think, where you, know, you start to feel like, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. That I'm not that. Or why wouldn't they want to come to my study? Or why wouldn't they want to come to my church? Well, that's not, Paul's, it's not about us, right? It's yeah. not about, so. So in the midst of this, Paul is still rejoicing. And, and joy comes from this inner relationship with Jesus Christ not from the fact that it's a beautiful sunny day and we're at camp. Um, that happiness comes and goes and, and joy is from this deep-seated relationship. And he's saying, in, in the midst of all this, I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. And then he talks again that I know through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And that might mean deliverance from jail or it might mean deliverance from earth from an earthly life and you know it hit me hard and you think as a pastor for my whole career that I'd have thought of this earlier it owned it earlier and that is that God is God over our lives and God is still God after we die and I was like whoa like with the amount of funerals I've done you think I'd have like clued in on what that did for me before now And then Paul goes on and says, I usually expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but have sufficient courage by now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For here's the biggie for to me, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think this reveals Paul's main concern. This verse jumped out at me more than any other one. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What does he mean by that? What do you think? To die is definitely a gain. We had this older lady from our, our old church who had no family, so we ended up become we didn't know, but ended up becoming medical power of attorney and everything for Thelma. We were her family. And she one time said, Oh, I'm just worried. I'm going to visit my sister Fern in Florida. She was 93, and Lee was like, Thelma, why are you worried? And she said, well, what if the plane goes down? <laughs> and Lee said, 
well, what if the plane goes down? Well, then we die. And then Lee said, well, then what? Well, then we'd be with Jesus. <laughs> and Thelma said, like, oh, I guess it's not so bad. Thelma <laughs> 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 Wilmoth. Sounds like I'm lisping. Thelma Wilmoth. Is that the voice you use? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, right. That's pretty close. <laughs> My kids could do it too. She thought of our kids as like her grandkids, even though they were really more like her great grandkids, age wise. Yeah. I've got Holy Spirit bumps. We go through, I'm saying this for the recording. We go through life saying, I'm darned if I do and I'm darned if I don't. And this puts that on its head. Yeah. Blessed if I do and blessed, blessed. if I don't. Yeah, yeah. right. For yeah. me to live as Christ yeah. and to die as gain. Because the reality is we fear death. We fear it for, you know, we fear it for us. We fear it for those that we love. We especially fear it for the, you know, for those that are younger. You know, and so we we have this fear, and Paul is just saying, "I'm not I'm not afraid." A, he knows who is in control, right? He he's got this vantage point that he understands, and he understands that God has a vantage point. That there's no mistake. There's no like, "Ooh, wish I hadn't taken that one out." You know, there's nothing like that. God knows what He's doing mm-hmm. and knows what is happening, and He's in complete control. Um, so that even when there are things that happen, accidents, God is still, I'm not saying he's controlling it, I'm saying he is still in control. God is always in control. And Paul is just adopting that. So whether I live or whether I die, either one, it's a blessing. Powerful stuff. Picking up in verse 22, if I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I can get a lot done. He's saying, if I, if I can just live, I can get a ton more done. I've got a lot to do here. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Then he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle that I still have. There's some interesting things here when he says in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Boy, I think we can mess up our witness when we don't mind our manners, so to speak. And the word for manners, the Greek word politiu, P-O-L-I-T, from which we get the word polite and from which we get the word politics. Which, which you is would, not 
not usually polite. polite. Yeah. But yeah, the, right. the word polis also it means their empire, you know, like metropolis. It means their empire on the one hand and the city on the other. So Paul is calling them to their polis for God's kingdom first. First, God. God's kingdom first. And C.S. Lewis has an amazing book that's my favorite book called The Great Divorce, talking about heaven and hell. And it's about a bus ride from hell to heaven. And hell is described as this gray town. And it's so dull. And heaven is so vivid it hurts the people's eyes because it's so brilliant. Not just like sun in your eyes, but the colors. And the grass is so real it hurts their feet to walk on it. Because if you're not prepared for heaven, and the idea is lust is not that it's too strong to make it into heaven. Lust is such a watered-down awful form of love that it's too weak to survive in heaven. And he has this great line that um, I looked up on my phone because I want to quote it right. The idea of conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of Christ. That's Facebook. That's not Facebook. (laughs) And he says this. um, I don't think He's saying, ultimately, you have to choose. We think we can marry heaven and hell. And what he's, that's why he calls this book The Great Divorce, because we spend the perpetual time of our lives trying to marry heaven and hell, when he says, ultimately, you're going to have to choose. You mean live in two worlds? Basically, yeah. Yeah. In some sense or other, the attempt to make that marriage is perennial. The attempt is based on the belief that reality never presents us with an absolutely unavoidable either or that granted skill and patience and above all time enough, some way of embracing both alternatives can always be found that mere development or adjustment or refinement will somehow turn evil into good without being called on for a final and total rejection of anything we should like to retain. He says this is a disastrous error. You can't take all luggage with you on all journeys. On one journey, even your right hand and your right eye may be among the things you have to leave behind. And he goes on to say, I don't think that everybody choosing wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists of being put back on the right road. A sum, S-U-M, a sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point. You can't go from evil to good simply by going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unwound bit by bit. And then a quote, with backward mutters of dissevering power. It's still an either or. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, and this goes to where is your quote unquote polis? Uh, Is it with God or is it with your city or is it with whatever it is that you love? If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking will be there. Beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. In that sense, it will be true that those who have completed the journey 
to say that good is everything and heaven is everywhere once we've chosen heaven. But we on this end of the road must not try to embrace the false and disastrous converse fancy that everything is good and everywhere is heaven. But what do you ask of earth? Earth, I think, will not be found by anyone to be in the end a very distinct place. I think earth, if chosen instead of heaven, will turn out to have been all along only a region of hell. But earth, if put second to heaven, to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. That's just the preface. And then he tells this story. that um, That's called The Great Divorce. And there's a great audio version of it. And you have to understand, he's, he's talking about this gray town and it's hell. You don't realize it's hell. Our youth minister tried to read it and got so lost he quit. And then he, then he has these conversations and he comes to the outskirts of heaven where people from heaven come to meet people from earth and have conversations. Not to get so sidetracked. But the idea of putting God first, putting heaven first, that we've got to let go of the polis of the empire or the city and that our identity, the conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, putting that first. So not our culture, not, right. our, not where we are here. We're not trying to be world-like. We're trying right. to be Christ-like. Right. So he's saying conduct yourselves. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner. And in verse 27, what are some of the ways that he invites us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Stand firm. Don't be blown around by every, and freak out. Ask yourself, where's the real threat? Is there a threat? Stand firm. What's another one? Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Right. Being in one spirit. Don't be afraid of those who oppose you, he says. You know, those who oppose you could be people in your family, people yeah. in your church, people at work. You know, there are people all around you who want to oppose you. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Make those people go, hmm. They should not be threatening to us easy to say the number there's there's been a a few and they happen to be women in the church who I don't think like me and I've been there 14 years so pray for them <laughs> I and I don't think they dislike me but I know I gave them way too much credit I turned them into these ogres you know what I'm saying some of them didn't have to get turned too far no just kidding <laughs> But the idea of, I gave them so much credit, like they, they were, had some big scheme against me. It was like almost like paranoia when I came to my senses and realized that. But rather, you know, the kill them with kindness is a good start. But, but think of this, act or live in such a way that your non-Christian friends question their disbelief in God. Live in such a way Live, really live. Don't be like, oh, I'm Conduct a Christian. Conduct yourself. In Conduct a yourself in such a way that your non Christian friends question their disbelief in God. I like how Paul said, I want to I hear about the fact that you were sperm in one spirit. And then he said, contending as one man for the faith, like standing together. Mm -hmm. that you are unified, that you are strong, that you are firm. I want to hear about it. 
whether I come to you or just hear about it, I want to know that that's you. And I want to know that you're not being, you're not being frightened by those around you, those who oppose you. There is a struggle against the culture, against general population of mis- their misunderstanding about it all. It's a reality, and sadly, some of it's true by how dopey we've been and how wigged out we've gotten over certain things. And I think in 2017, it's easy to be frightened by the culture. It's easy to be um, cowed by the culture and to feel we've lost control as believers, as Christians of, of the culture. But I don't think that our culture was all that different than the culture they faced in Philippi. Because the Roman uh, Empire at that time um, was sordid, was filled with it was violent and vile and all that. There's, there's not a lot of the same things that we face now it, with sexuality and all of the junk that we face is there too. And the so. temptations, just they called them pagan gods. There's so much similar, and that's why there's so much to keep going back to in this book. Even um, suffering is another one, and um, that's a part of it. That's a part of life, which is easy for me to say because I'm not suffering too bad right now. But um, you can have joy in the midst of all of the trials and all of the sufferings, and it doesn't mean you're clueless or some Pollyanna. It means you're embracing the whole of reality. Here's how I would like to close, and it's a challenge. And If you have a pencil, write this. For me to live is blank. And just draw a blank. And here's what I want you to think about. Um, give, make a list of your priorities and your schedule for this week, which this week it's like, well, lunchtime, free time, family time. So think about back at home. For me to live is blank. And then think of your priorities. Think of your schedule, what you're trying to get done. How would you honestly fill in that blank? And then the second question is this. What things would change for you if you filled in the blank with Christ? That's going back to that verse 21. 121 for me to live is Christ to die as gain. For me to live, if I'm real, being real with myself, is blank, 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 blank. But if I were to say for me to live is Christ, what would that change of my free time, my screen time, my stress time, my work, work time? Your relationship. Yeah. And how would this new reason for living affect your daily life or any hardship that you're facing. For me to live as Christ. Any final words, honey? Because you usually have the last word. Eh, eh, eh. Why don't you pray? <laughs> How's that for grace? I'm, so, I'm learning. She's a whip, not a whack. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the amazing fact that we have this letter that was written 2,000 years ago by this amazing man, Paul. And Lord, the fact isn't that he was so amazing, but that he had such an amazing Savior, and that was you. 
and his obedience and his living in you um, has just um, been a tremendous encouragement for us. So, Lord, as we go from, from here this day, may we realize that to live is Christ and even to die is gain. May we realize that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. May we realize you've called us to joy, not because you want us to be flighty or um, lightweight, but that you've called us to the depth of living so that we have this bigger view, not just looking at the mess from underneath, but the, the trusting in the beauty of your creation from the top. Help us to treat one another that way. And Lord, help us as we go from here to be courageous in whatever chains we may feel, trusting that your strength um, is more than enough for us. And I thank you for Bayshore once more uh, as we go from here, Lord, that it would be something that we, that your Holy Spirit, um, which has claimed this land um, for the glory of God, would be ours to share. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.